0: Hear now God's word. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled he shall be called a nazarene the grass withers the flower fades but the word of god remains forever we live in a matthew 2:16 fallen world a world under the curse of sin, a world where evil rulers like Herod are raging, where kings are setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, Psalm 2. Oftentimes, as David Murray says, when our external world begins to crack and creak and crumble, so does our internal world. For many of us Christians, we can begin to doubt God's goodness and his sovereignty, Anxiety, fear, and anger can weaken our confidence in the Lord. So where do we turn in a Matthew 216 world? Well, we do what Matthew is going to tell us all over and over again. We turn away from ourselves to Christ. We look at the Savior because this is our Father's world. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. We are in a world that is providentially under the control of a sovereign, good, gracious God who sent a child. Did you notice that, kids, throughout this passage? Over and over again, it says the child, the child, the child. The Mandalorian came to my mind, if any of you have seen that, the child. All of these different films and books and things that talk about children and things, in some ways, it's a rip-off of the real thing, (laughs) This is a child that will come and fulfill all the promises of God. This is the thrill of hope for a weary world. This is the salvation that God has provided and accomplished in his dear son. And this fulfills prophecies that no human would ever come up with. In this passage, the child comes and fulfills prophecies related to Egypt, to Bethlehem, to a place called Ramah and Nazareth. How can this be? It is in fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. The child is coming to crush the seed of the serpent, to destroy the work of the devil. First, the escape to Egypt. All of the Old Testament types and shadows have been pointing forward to this. A child is born. And about a week after Jesus' birth, he is circumcised. He's named. Mary and then Joseph as well and the child go to Jerusalem for her purification. They return to Bethlehem. The wise men arrive. That means Mary and Joseph would have been in Bethlehem before the visit of the wise men. The timeline here. And as they were there, do you remember they meet a prophetess, Anna? who went to the temple day after day to worship God, and in God's providence, she was there when Mary and Joseph and Jesus came. They meet a man named Simeon, who prophesies of the triumph of the child, but also of the suffering, the pain, that not only would come to Christ, but to Mary herself. A sword will pierce through your soul, Simeon says to Mary, and that's beginning to happen already. Already, after the joy of the birth of the child, danger is on the way. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, get out of town. There's a death warrant that's out. It's credible. An assassination may happen. Herod doesn't really want to worship this child. He wants to kill the child. Herod, who, like we saw last week, is paranoid, killed three of his sons, killed one of his wives, probably because she was a Hasmonean and Herod had taken over from the Hasmonean dynasty and didn't want any Hasmoneans alive. He certainly would kill the one born to be king of the Jews. Herod wanted to be king. He didn't want any threat to his throne. And you don't often see this on Christmas cards, do you? Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing the homicidal rage of Herod. They flee, possibly in the middle of the night. It's urgent. They leave for a 75-mile trip or so to Egypt. That means 20 miles or less a day. It would take them a week or so, plus or minus. Why Egypt? Egypt is under Rome's control, but it's outside of Herod's territories. How deep into Egypt, we don't know. But Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great, was an asylum for Jews, and there are many Jewish people in Egypt. What we see here is that God's sovereignty is at work even in the suffering of the infant Jesus. Jesus is an infant refugee, an infant fugitive, and Christ Himself is suffering already in his humiliation. And when we suffer, loved ones, we need to remember, this is what we can expect in this life. A life of joy, yes, but not ease. A life of trials, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ. So they escape to Egypt. But the escape to Egypt is not just to protect Christ. As if there needs to be more, well, there is more. It's to fulfill a prophecy, a very interesting one, in fact. Do you notice, kids, in your Bible, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, a prophet is quoted. We've already seen a prophecy from Isaiah of a virgin birth, from Micah, that the baby would be born in Bethlehem, and now from who? Do you see? Hosea. Also, about 700 BC, remember Hosea and Gomer? This is that prophet. From Hosea 11:1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. God as a father is such a precious and very familiar title for us, isn't it? But in the Old Testament, this was not common. This is a portrayal of God's love and mercy to not only call his people, to not only care for them, but to provide and to protect them. It it brings us back to Exodus 4. Israel, my firstborn son, God says. And here we have a verse that talks of God's tender love for his covenant people. But how is this a prophecy? Do you notice that? It's referring back, isn't it? to Exodus, not forward to something to come. Or is it? Jesus is fulfilling Hosea 11 in what is called typology. As Ligon Duncan says, a type is a nonverbal prediction. So you have direct prophecy. He will be born in Bethlehem from Micah. Now you have patterns, events, places, and things that point forward to something greater. That's what's going on here. Divine foreshadowing. Matthew wants you to see that there are echoes here of the Old Testament. As Augustine said, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. Jesus and Mary walked through the same wilderness that Israel did backwards. Backwards. Israel wandered for 40 years in this wilderness. Jesus, as we know, would be tempted for 40 days in the desert. Now they're walking the same wilderness backwards as Sinclair Ferguson says, the Exodus in reverse. Exodus part two. Often movies are not better the second time they come around. Is there Sing 2? Is that coming out soon? Rocky 2? That is, Ferguson says, unless the second is written into the script, the Lord of the Rings. In this case, the second exodus is better than the first. The events of Matthew are a shadow cast backwards from Christ's life, because now we have an exodus not from a physical Pharaoh, like we saw in the days of the Old Testament, but deliverance from Satan and sin, and guilt, and death. Jesus is telling us in his word the Christmas message is all about salvation. Christ is the perfect and true Israel. He goes to Egypt like the nation of Israel did. He recapitulates the history of his people. And it's good news for you today because Christ is the new Israel the new head of his people, and as you trust him by faith, as you are united to him, all that is his is yours by faith, and he leads you, loved ones, through the wilderness of this present evil age of rulers raging against God. He leads you through this, ultimately, to the promised new heavens and new earth. These themes are immensely comforting at the end of a year. Secondly, we see the bloodshed in Bethlehem. So what's happening is Christ in his history is repeating Israel's history. We see it again. The camera now zooms in on Herod. Herod, do you remember, children, had told the wise men, go, find this Christ child so that I can worship him. Does it surprise you that Herod didn't just go himself? It was only about six miles away. Does it surprise you that the king of the universe was there the whole time, perhaps up to two years, and Herod didn't bother to go check him out? Does it amaze you how God was protecting the child, Jesus, through all of that? That Herod could have instantly killed a baby. Why didn't he? Because God is protecting that little baby. As God protects you by his grace. We see that here as Herod flies into a rage. He's furious. He's been tricked. His passions are out of control. It points forward here, in a sense, to what we will see, Lord willing, in the new year. I'm excited to go through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. What's the opposite of uncontrolled rage and passion? It's meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We heard that in Isaiah 11. The child, Jesus, is meek. Meekness is not weakness, Colin Smith says. Meekness is controlled strength. It tames the temper, subdues the self, calms the passions, manages by the Spirit of God the impulses of the heart, brings order out of chaos in the soul. A meek man or woman boy or girl, is humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, content, strong, and brave. That's just a preview. Herod is not meek. In fact, think the exact opposite. The Magi are headed east to Babylon, perhaps, Iraq. Joseph and Mary are going south to Egypt. Another group is now on the move. In his rage, Herod orders soldiers from his palace to travel the Jerusalem-Bethlehem road as an execution squad. He sends them to murder all the boys, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem had about 500 people So this is not the thousands of babies that Pharaoh killed in the days of the Exodus, but it is still a horrible, wicked evil. People say maybe 10 to 20 boys that age were slaughtered that day in Bethlehem. Those of you who have children, those of you who don't, those of you who have loved ones, cousins or nieces or nephews or church family, you see these little ones, you know the ones that are two and younger among us? Herod himself is not only doing this, but Satan is behind it. What is happening is the seed of the serpent, as we saw on Christmas Eve, is raging to try to crush God, his church, his people, his Savior, his plan of salvation. Jesus himself would say in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Loved ones, this is not a defensive posture. As Christians, we're not cowering in the corner. Jesus will build his church going forth to the nations. Satan can no longer deceive the nations anymore because this child has come, because the birth of Jesus leads to the death of Jesus, which leads to the destruction of the devil and his power. Yes, he is still active. Yes, he is not yet in hell, but God is reigning. God is ruling, and the gospel is going forth. We don't need to fear. We can boldly, confidently, joyfully proclaim that in the midst of suffering, we have a Savior, a Savior who's a man of sorrows, and we don't Pretend suffering doesn't exist. Do you see in Matthew 2.17 where this goes? That the Herod killings are themselves a fulfillment again of prophecy. This time of Jeremiah. The prophets are all over Matthew 2. Jeremiah 600s B.C. The weeping prophet. Jeremiah 31 is being quoted here. In those days, loved ones, the armies of Babylon came rushing upon the people of Israel. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar would take a sword and run it through a woman who was pregnant to kill her and the child that she was bearing. Jeremiah 31 tells us of this and it connects us with Ramah. See that? A town from the tribe of Benjamin, probably, about six miles north of Jerusalem. Ramah is the place of deportation between north and south. Ramah is where the Babylonians and the Assyrians as well, at a different point in history, would gather the people to deport them. So families are ripped apart. Pregnant women are killed. Children are killed. Other children are taken away in exile. That's what's happening in Jeremiah 31. And it comes up in Matthew 2. Why is that? To understand that, we have to go back before Jeremiah 31, because who is weeping? Do you see that? Do you see how Matthew is teaching us how to read our Bibles? Rachel is weeping at Ramah, but Rachel lived a 1,000 years before Ramah. Rachel is the wife of Jacob, along with Leah, right? Rachel has joseph and who else benjamin on the road from bethel to Bethlehem, as rachel gives birth to benjamin she's weeping why is she weeping because she's about to die she won't see her children in this life she will in glory Rachel is weeping because she gives birth to a baby and she dies. Now, a thousand years later, Jeremiah picks up that theme and says it's happening all over again, this time in the context of exile. Rachel personifies Israel. Families are ripped apart. Exile is happening. It's happening all over again weeping and tears and sorrow. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Do you remember Jesus? He also weeps. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Jesus weeps over the unbelief of the people of Israel. But what's the connection with Matthew 2? Jeremiah 31, Rachel, and Herod. How does this connect? Sinclair Ferguson tells us, Matthew is saying Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy that is fulfilled in Herod slaughtering the boys in Bethlehem. Now in Matthew 2, it's not a foreign nation like Babylon coming to destroy Israel. It's one of Israel's own kings. A fake king, of course, but Herod. And the pattern is repeated again. Now it's the promised child, Christ, who is being sought to be killed. Weeping again in Bethlehem, not only in Rachel's day and the days of the Babylonians in Jeremiah 31, but again, and how many of those parents in Bethlehem whose boys were killed would have thought of David who had one of his own sons who died, David, the king of Bethlehem. It's happening all over again. But this time, a voice is heard. Yes, Israel broke the old covenant, But Jeremiah 31, if you remember, is also a prophecy of the new covenant. Not only of weeping, but of a day of great joy. Jeremiah 31, 16 says, They shall come back from the land of the enemy. The babies that Herod is killing, the babies that were killed in the days of Jeremiah and sent into exile, they will come back. How? They're dead. How will they come back? Because Jeremiah also had hope in the resurrection. Jeremiah says a new covenant will come. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurates on the night in which he is betrayed. The new covenant that is fulfilled in the shedding of his blood. Weeping will turn to Gladness. Matthew is saying, Rachel, your king has come. The one Herod wanted to kill, he's protected. And by his blood that he sheds, a new covenant bringing forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and eternal salvation to all of God's people is here. God keeps his covenant promises. That's what Christmas is about. You sit here today and you say, well, life is cruel to me. Unexplained tragedies. Pain and sorrow in our families as a church and our extended families. Dear Christian, Christmas is especially for those who mourn and suffer grief. Because the message of Christmas is the death of death in the death and the resurrection of Christ, whatever sorrow or shadow of death casts itself on you this Christmas, we have comfort and assurance in the hope of the new covenant, of a Savior who is born where? Third, in a very humble hometown. Prophetic fulfillment again. It says in Matthew 2.19, Mary and Joseph and Jesus stay in Egypt until when, children? Until Herod dies. We don't know how long, but theologians and historians say maybe a couple of months. Herod died shortly before Passover in March or April of 4 B.C. Josephus says when he died, he had ulcerated entrails, putrefied maggot-filled organs, and constant convulsions. That was his death. I bring that up mainly because this is real history. This has been documented not only in the Bible, but by Josephus and others outside the Bible. Herod's dead. the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in another dream. This time, Joseph, get up, take the child, not to Egypt. But back to Israel, again, repeating the pattern of the Old Testament. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. They're dead. See that? That's plural. Not only Herod, but there were others, we don't know who they were, who were trying to kill Christ. They're all dead. God knew the plot. God protected his son. But now, the question is, where are they going to live? From refugees in Egypt to where? In one way, George Foreman the boxer and Herod are alike. George Foreman had five sons. He named them all George Edward Foreman. All five of them had the same name. Do you remember Bob Newhart? This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. Anybody? Herod called all three of his sons, what? Herod. There's Herod Philip, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod Archelaus. All three, the same name. Archelaus was the worst of them all. He takes over Judea in the south. That's the area around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. He exceeded his father in evil. He was so evil that he was deposed by Caesar Augustus in 6 AD. But he's still ruling at this point when Mary and Joseph and Jesus are looking for a place to live. Sinclair Ferguson gives a great history here. He says that this man, Archelaus, and one of his other brothers, fought over the will of his father. Herod the Great left six different wills. He changed them all. Some things never change, do they? Families fighting over inheritances and wills and the sad stuff of division. Herod Archelaus makes a trip to Rome At Passover, he has 3,000 people killed. Mary and Joseph are traveling north. They know he's governing Judea. They can't live there. They bypass Bethlehem and they head north to Galilee. And as Ferguson notes, when you read your Bibles, you'll see this in the New Testament. Jesus, in some ways, is never free from the Herod family. Herod Antipas, another of Herod the Great's sons, is the man who had John the Baptist beheaded. Antipas is the same man that longed to talk to Jesus, but he really just wanted to mock him, didn't he? Herod Antipas is the man that Jesus appears in front of that night in which he would go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. Herod Antipas and Pilate hated each other, but they came together because they hated someone else worse than each other. They hated Christ. Herod Antipas mocked Jesus. He had a robe put on him, probably one of his own hand-me-down pieces of clothes. And Jesus stood before Herod Antipas 30 years or so after his birth. And despite Herod's questions to him, Jesus made no answer. He opened not his mouth, as Isaiah 53 says. A few years later, Herod Antipas is betrayed by his nephew, Herod Agrippa. Ferguson brings this up. Because you read the New Testament, Acts 12, Herod again. I thought he was dead. He was, but here's another one. Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, persecuted the church, had James, the brother of John, executed, arrested Peter. The people said, the voice of a god. And God struck him dead in Acts 12. The worms ate his body. But the word of God was increasing and multiplying. There's yet another Herod, Agrippa second, Herod's great-grandson. That's the one that appears before Paul in Acts 26, or Paul appears before him. Why does Ferguson bring this up? Because in telling this story, of Herod's family and their persecution of Christ and his church over decades. The New Testament tells us the history-long conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is continuing. But also, that the victory of Christ, the seed of the woman, is secure. Incredible encouragement, loved ones. And here's another application Ferguson brings. You see the family of Herods, and you see how often it is that a child repeats what their parents themselves do. Our kids breathe in the atmosphere we breathe out every day. Thankfully, not all the time, by the grace of God. But Ferguson says, what did Herods, all the Herods, learn from their father Herod? To hate Jesus. And he asks, what gift are you giving and am I giving to our kids this Christmas? Is it the gift of a home where we are sinners, yes, sinners saved by grace, where the Christ who is in the Bible and the gospel of that Christ is the foundation? Are we giving a gift to our children of Christmas of love for Jesus? It's a good question for all of us to ask. So why Nazareth? Ferguson's little excursus, which which I was gripped by. That's why I said it, is why I went that way. But why Nazareth? What does it say? Well, Nazareth, why did they go live there? That's where they were living before, right? Mary and Joseph? That's where the angel appeared to Mary. They're going back there, but there's another reason. What's the other reason? Verse 23, kids. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a what? A Nazarene. Which of the prophets said that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Maybe Ryan and Dustin can cue the Jeopardy music. I'm just kidding. Which one? The answer is none of them. It wasn't mentioned by Josephus or the Talmud or anywhere in the Old Testament. Nazareth, not at all. What's happening here? Well, maybe Matthew's making a pun the word Nazareth is similar to the word from Hebrew, uh, Isaiah 11, 1 for root or branch, not Sarah. Jesus is the branch of Jesse, maybe. Or, who else was a Nazarene? Samson. Samson, who himself sinned in horrible ways, but the Spirit of God comes on him. At the end of his life, he destroys the Philistines. Remember that? Or at least a large number of them. Now Jesus, the Spirit of God, like Isaiah 11 says, Is coming on him to destroy Satan himself. Is that the connection? Could be. There could be a lot of connections. But I think the main one is this. None of the prophets said Nazareth, word for word. But all of the prophets said Nazareth. How's that? Because the prophets said Jesus would be despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, insulted, hated by his people. Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. It doesn't get much more humble than Nazareth. About 500 people. Not a resort vacation place. No man's land. What does Matthew 223 say? Not that he will be a Nazarene, but he will be what? Called a Nazarene. To be called a Nazarene is to be called lowlife, trash, worthless. Remember Nathaniel? John 2? He hears from Philip that Philip found the Messiah, and Nathaniel, with a look down your nose insult, says... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? When the Christians were referred to in Acts as the Nazarene sect, Acts 24, 5, that was meant to hurt. In synagogue prayers for several centuries, the Jews would curse Christians as Nazarenes. This is a great surprise. Christmas is a surprise. A Savior that comes to be born in a manger, to grow up as a Nazarene, to die on a cursed cross, the world would say, no way. That's not a Savior. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism talks of Christ's humiliation Which consists of his being born in a low condition. And this is an encouragement to us. The Savior stoops so low to sanctify all that seems common and ordinary and unimpressive in our lives. You're going to milk cows, you're going back to teach students, and you're exhausted. You're preparing tax returns, you're a doctor diagnosing a perplexed patient. You're changing diapers. You're working at a gas station. You're wondering what job you might have. You're cleaning the house. Jesus' humiliation, loved ones, suffuses all the glamorlessness of our callings with a touch of his humble glory. Remember that. The things you will be doing, Lord willing, in 2022 are not unimportant this is your calling from God, and you can glorify God in it. Jesus comes in humility. The gospel itself, loved ones, doesn't say to you, get the highest batting average, and you win an award. Complete your grades and graduate, and you win. Those things are good. That's called the law. The gospel says Jesus is the true and perfect Israel, the federal head of God's elect. He lived, he obeyed the law of God, he suffered, he died, he did it in your place. We need a Savior to lead us out of the exodus of our sin. Our sin, loved ones, enslaves us. We're enslaved to it. We measure ourselves, compare ourselves to one another. We boast and we brag our covetousness our self-righteousness, our pride, the lust of life. Jesus comes to deliver us from that. That's good news at the end of this year. Loved ones, this is not a New Year's resolution. It's not turning over a new leaf. It is Jesus comes to do what we can't do. He saves us from our sins. He frees us from the death camp. He nourishes us by his word. He leads us on a new exodus from the tyranny of Satan and sin and death itself. Dear Christian, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Christmas is full of surprises. But as one man says, in other ways, it's not surprising at all. All of these prophecies have been foretold for hundreds of years. It must be by the plan of God. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you have done or left undone in this year, Jesus says, whoever comes to me in faith and repentance, I will never cast out, no matter how great your past resistance to him. But loved ones, there is no neutrality to Christ. We are either in the kingdom of darkness and Satan or the kingdom of light and Christ by grace. We either worship him or we deny him. There's no neutrality. There's no, I'm just going to sit on the fence. We are not our own. And so Emmaus Road, as we thank God for the gospel, as we thank God for preserving us through this year, we are reminded that we are not our own. But we, in Christ, with body and soul and life and in death, belong to our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all our sins and redeemed us from What? from all the power of what, kids, from catechism? All the power of the the devil. And so preserves us, that without the will of our Father in heaven who loves us, not a hair can fall from your head. Indeed, all things, Christian, work together for your salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures us of eternal life, and makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled, thankful, and grateful for the blood of the new covenant. And we pray that we might be nourished and built up in assurance through the gospel again to end this year that we might worship the Lord Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask that you would open our mouths and that we might declare your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.